Are you an Aussie tradie and your paperwork is shady? Do the doctors from sod keep you up late at night? Are you sick of pushing paper? Swinging your tools the more you gave up. Call us the tricks of your trade. Welcome to the Tricks of Your Trade podcast, where we talk about trade business topics to help you get through business life unscathed. Does the bill to pay you late and your cash flow fluctuates? Do you dread the office work? Can't afford a full-time clerk? Consider working smarter. Don't be a business smarter. Call us the Tricks of Your Trade. Okay, so in this episode of the Tricks of Your Trade podcast, I'm talking to Tim Dive from Workplace Advisory Specialists. We're going to be talking about ABN workers and employment uh, contracts and employment types and types of employees and how you might be able to get staff and not get in trouble with the tax man or the law. So welcome, Tim. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. In the lead up to Christmas, we were inundated with calls with subbies who were being uh, audited by for payroll tax purpose, purposes. And it seemed like there'd been a real crackdown in that space. Did you see a bit of that late last year? Um, definitely, I, I definitely have. I think I think there's been a fair bit of movement with um, contractor versus employee, just generally. And you know, when you're talking about the ATO, that's really um, uh, my background is more of a uh, an employment uh, regulation uh, legislation sort of area. But ATO works a little bit differently. Um, and there's been there's a fair bit of confusion that I see most employers have with contractors versus employee for payroll items and superannuation and that, and that sort of stuff. Uh, confusion's always around the definition of, of what is a contractor, what is an employee, because they do differ between employment law and how the Fair Work Commission might see it and recently how the higher court sees it yes. and also how the ATO assesses with respect to um, someone being due super or, or, or yeah, that, sort of, that sort of payments and entitlements. So, yeah, there's a lot of confusion. There always, there always is. Um, it's, uh, it's because they just the systems don't talk to each other. Yes. Um, it's remiss of me. I should have asked you to tell our listeners a little bit about your background, and I'm guilty of doing this when I know people well, where I just start <laughs> talking about the nerdy stuff. Can you give us a rundown on your background and what um, Workplace Advisory Specialist does? I can, yeah. So I'm uh, I'm originally from Sydney. I, I grew up in the southwestern suburbs of Sydney, and I finished school relatively early and, and fell into construction um, where I was a, a labourer, essentially. And as a young kid, I was trying to get an apprenticeship, but it was really difficult back then. But there was a big rush to get Sydney developed for the, uh, the lead-up to the Olympic Games in 2000. So there's a lot of construction happening in all different areas right across the, 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 the city. Um, and... Funnily enough, um, you know, the, all the jobs that I tried to get and apprenticeships I tried to get, I was always told by builders back then to go and get an ABN and be a labourer. So yeah. it's in line with what we're talking about now. It's, it's still happening now. Yeah. Um, and so I did that. You know, I did that at, at uh, about 14, 15 years old. I was um, I, I entered that sort of labouring world and um, I did that for some for some time, some, some significant time. And I ended up... plastering. Yeah, I, that, that was the main skill that I developed. It was, it was I was plastering, so if, you know, and doing the whole the whole spectrum of plastering, fixing, yeah. sanding, cornice, and then setting and all that sort of stuff. These days, it, it seems to be four different trades. It, it, it's sort of how it's managed, uh, I think, these days. But um, you know, that, that's that's the main skill I learned. But look, I, I did trusses, frames, tiling, concreting, landscaping. You know, when you work for builders, you 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 got to do what needs to be done. Um, yeah. So, uh, but never electrical, never plumbing. I never touched that stuff and I've got no interest in doing it. 
So, um, yeah, I, so I had a good, a good um, 10, 11, maybe 12 years um, in that environment, both in Sydney and also in, in Queensland. After I came to Queensland in 2005, a couple of years after that, I decided that I, I, I wanted to have a bit of a change. And um, uh, I had no, no kids, wasn't married, I was single, had no real responsibilities. So I moved down to Brisbane and just looked for an opportunity that would fall in my lap but if, if it interested me. And then I, I, I found um, recruitment in, H, in the HR world. Um, so that I, I kind of took to that naturally because, um, again, there was a bit of a, um, a need for construction staff at that time. And um, I had knowledge from the, from the work site on the other mm-hmm. side of the table. Um, so the people were interested in hiring me and, and gave me a shot. Um, but then from there, yeah, I, I went into um, the, the whole world of industrial relations. And so I was working with um, a lot of union activity and um, hostility. Um, I was part of a team that had to deal with um, BHP Billiton's or BMA's coal issues for a couple of years. I had a lot of industrial action there and um, I got great exposure to that. So my background really comes from um, the construction site and then moves into the, the, the HRIR world. And um, I've tried to bring all that together with workplace advisory specialists and, and work with smaller smaller organisations. I mean, anywhere up to, I'm currently working with anywhere up to 1,500 employees, but um, you know, I'm not working with organisations that have tens of thousands of employees anymore. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of knowledge that I've been able to, bring um, from all that background and combine with with um, with the HR world and IR world to help smaller businesses. So yeah. um, how's that for a rundown? That's amazing. And that's Good. one of the things I love um, the most. Actually, when I was um, a lot younger, I lived in Moranbar and my partner was a cadet for BMA Coal and he was a boilermaker first. And we used to have this theory that how how much better engineers are when they've been a tradesperson first. And that really sort of coloured my career strategy as well because I wanted to be a construction lawyer that knows how to build. And I've found people like you over the years where we're sort of born of the industry and you're not just straight out of uni doing, you know, the legal aspect of it, but you actually got the street smarts from being on the ground in those commercial contexts. I think it just makes such a difference, particularly the subcontractors who have got these business realities and sometimes the black and white letter of the law or the exact best practice way to do something just isn't commercially viable. So we need some more street smart ways to get things done. Um, So just on that, I was telling you a little bit earlier, it just seems at the moment like with the labour shortage, the industry, nobody wants to be an employee. Everybody wants to be on ABN because they want the flexibility to job hop or move around. And even a lot of the subcontractors sometimes prefer that as well because then they can hire out their guys or lend their guys to to a friendly competitor. Um, but the law seems to be going in the other direction where they're trying to push people into being categorised as an employee. Yeah, yeah. And you can see that clearly with um, the government's recent uh, IR uh, amendments, amendments of the Fair Work Act, basically. And there's two, key, there's two key focuses that those amendments bring into the Fair Work Act, and they are job security is one of them. Um, and so that ties into exactly what we're talking about uh, with that comment, uh, but also um, gender equality. 
So the job security side of it, it's really hard to know what exactly they mean by job security right now because um, you know the, the Labor government and unions are renowned for wanting full-time employees, um, and and that's to them that's job security. Um, you know, in the private in the private sector and and in the world today, that that doesn't give you security at all. Uh, you know, you, you can you can lose your your job at any time. You can be made redundant. There's all sorts of things that can happen. Um, and people don't last long in jobs these days. You know, the, the average time spent in the job might be about a couple of years at the most, and that's it. So uh, people do want to move around. Um, it's a bit of a conflict, I think, with what people want and need and, and um, expect for themselves against what the government is now trying to impose with the Fair Work Act changes. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, it's reflective, I think, too, of even the payroll tax audits, Um but this particular subcontractor who called me was really struggling to get labour um, and was just saying to me, there's, there's simply no other way for me to run my business. People mm. don't want to be on the payroll um, doing this stuff. So it, it really lends itself to what are some of the solutions for these guys? Is there a way that they can have proper subcontracts with ABN workers how are you going about that if they're doing it just ad hoc or if they're doing it, you know, a day at a time or a week at a time or if they are doing it for 15 years almost full time, what sort of strife is that subcontractor going to get in if they let that go on? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question and perfect question to ask right now because um, last year there's been a significant departure from the way that um, courts in Australia assess an employee versus a contractor. Um, prior to that, there was a lot of risk around engaging contractors. Um, the, the way that it used to be, well, the, what the risk was, was that um, the contractor um, may be deemed an employee by the way that the relationship was actually managed in practice and, and decisions that were made in practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore then resulting in underpayments or back payments being required, entitlements being um, required to be back paid by the you know, lawfully, um, claims coming against um, uh, business owners from people who were subcontractors but uh, realised maybe their back goes against the wall or, or something happened and they, they make a claim against the company. Uh, very, very difficult for a company to, to try and defend those claims mm. um, because it was so ambiguous. You know, it was a multifactorial test of about 11 different factors that, you know, if seen one way or the other, then, you know, it was a really hard thing to try and explain. Um, so last year, the, the departure that I, that I mentioned last year, uh, a couple of cases went to the higher court. And I, I won't go into detail of what those cases were because it's sort of insignificant really. But um, what the higher court uh, decisions mean is that now um, it's far easier for employers to safely engage contractors provided that they've got a, a, a fairly clear contract in place. Okay. So the, what actually happens in the workplace behaviorally behaviorally and and by management and by instruction um, is is not going to be considered um, in the definition of employee versus uh, contractor it's going it's going to be based on what the contract itself says essentially okay. um, you know there, there will be there will be times where let's say the contract that is in place is only really partially um, covering what what it what's what it's required to cover at that point, 
there may be some sort of avenue for a court to look at what happens in the workplace to determine what is the nature. But as long as as long as a business and a, and a, um, a subcontractor uses a robust um, contractor agreement that um, wholly covers all the necessary parts of that relationship, you're going to be really safe to, to engage a contractor for however long you want. Um, okay. So that's a, that's a significant difference to how it used to be. Yes. Um, and so that that's quite a, that's quite a good uh, a big win for employers that use contractors or want to. Yeah. No, I remember um, when I, last time I worked for a builder, I remember the accounts lady used to do this little um, survey online, and she'd do it every time the payroll went through, and then she'd do the test to see whether the person was an employer or a contractor. And I used to think it was the most absurd thing, <laughs> and she used to print out. The results of that and put it on the file every week and just roll my eyes and go is this really what has to be done um, yeah. but what about the people who have had people on abn for a, a lot of our i shouldn't say a lot of our clients but some of our clients do sort of mention here and there that they've got people who work for them for close on 15 years in an abn capacity and they just don't know how to go about getting that person changed over and they're concerned that if they do that that they'll trigger some trip wire and then suddenly they'll be in trouble for it mm, yeah um so converting them to an employee do you mean or yeah well it, i suppose assessing whether they have to convert them to an employee and then what are their options yeah i think trying to determine what you what you should do in that situation um it's probably it's probably timely now to say too that it, anything i say here shouldn't be taken as legal instruction or anything like that because it does really differentiate depending on a certain certain circumstances but the the very first thing that anyone that has a concern like this should do is to, is to look at what's in writing um what is there a contract of any kind in writing if there's not what emails have been sent between yourselves about about workload and matters because that can be relied on too for it as as written agreements um or variations to agreements and all sorts of things um understand uh how clear the relationship is with what you have in writing between yourselves if there's nothing in writing, um, you should be um, trying to get that in writing pretty pretty quickly. And I think the best way to do that is just to talk to the people. Um, you know, have, have a sit down. Um, there, there should be a roundabout agreement with what's happening in, in reality. You know, people should there shouldn't be ambiguity of if you're a contractor or you're, or you're an employee. Um, if contractors are um, putting in invoices every week or every month or whoever they're working at. Um, they're they're claiming uh, tax as a business and all this sort of stuff. Then yeah, they understand they're a contractor, so there shouldn't be any in disagreement there. Um, if you don't have something in writing, get it in writing um, right now. If a claim comes against you right now, retrospectively it won't matter. It's, it's going to be based on what the higher court has ruled, and, and it's going to be based on the contract and what's in writing. That's what matters. Yeah, so um, do what you can to get it in writing um, and use. One thing I always um, re have reiterated to all my clients that I work with is, um, you know, many times I go into business and I, I'll assess their the risk of their contractors. Um, this is prior to uh, these high court rulings as well. And I would see a, a variety of different contracts. And uh, so a larger company accepting a subcontractor's contract which is a different contract every time they accept it is really high risk in my book. I think they want to have um, a robust standard contract that they try and implement with every subcontractor. Mm. Um, so they understand what the agreements are that they've got in place. Yeah. 
yeah. that's another thing to consider as well. It's very interesting because as a construction lawyer and somebody who reads a lot of subcontracts, there's a very big difference between a subcontract document that a big commercial builder gives to a subcontracting company versus what a subby gives to an ABN worker to do subcontract work. And, you know, they technically call them the same thing. They should subcontract document, but they're by nature extremely different. And if you look at um, the things that you're talking about needing to cover off on for making sure that you comply complying with the employment law side of things, um, uh, oftentimes completely different to looking at things like defects, liability periods, retentions. And I mean, if you if you asked a subby on an ABN to let you hold retention, you'd never have anyone working for you ever. Um, yeah. And I think too, there's also, we should mention the labour hire licensing in Queensland as well, mm. um, in terms of making sure that that's covered off on and that you're not suddenly, um, or the person you're engaging is not doing labour hire, um, that they are actually bringing something to the table that is of substance over and above just tools of the trade and that they are under a proper subcontract agreement and that their liabilities extend to more than just turning up and doing the job. So, um, yeah. so there are lots and lots of little things to cover off on there. Um, and then obviously the amendments to unfair contract terms legislation as well. So um, a delicate balance and certainly something that I think in the past a lot of subcontractors have thought that they could get away with not having anything in writing, that maybe that might be muddy enough waters that they could feign ignorance. But now it sounds like with the new um, the new test and going away from the multifactorial test that it definitely would be better if you just had something in writing because then you could pull it out and say, here it is, this is what it is. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and an important thing to say here too should be... Um, Avoid just getting your your full-time, part-time, casual, whatever contract templates you have out and just replacing full-time with independent contractor agreement. Yes. Avoid that. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, because they're, they're, they're different agreements. Um, so uh, templates are great. Make sure that they've been, you know, don't try not to download things from the from the internet and just use them as uh, as they see fit. You really want to make sure that they're, they're tailored to, yes. to, to suit what you need them to, to cover you for. Um, so that's that's right. So the, it's it's not just a matter of just having a document. Make sure the documents are the right the right one to use. Yeah, it always amuses me when I see people download other lawyers' documents, and then when something goes wrong, they take them to a lawyer. And there's this Russian roulette sort of poetic justice thing that happens where one day they're going to take it to the lawyer that wrote it, and they will have <laughs> stolen it from somewhere on the internet. Um, so if someone was to come to you fresh and say, look. I'm going to show you all my dirty laundry. Like this is all my problems. What is the process that you go through with them to get their everything in order? Yeah, so there's there's a standard way I go about it, and and it's uh, it takes me about ninety minutes, and I'll and I'll I'll go through and ask um, a whole range of questions um, about not not just about how things operate, but how they're intended to operate. Because um, you know what, what what a company might have written down in contracts or policies and things like that are often not not at all the way it's working in practice. So um, you, you want to make sure that those things mirror up, um, mm -hmm. that um, they're understood. So then we can create a, a template or uh, some sort of documentation framework for your employees to follow and or yourself to follow um, 
that doesn't leave holes for you to fall into um, yeah. with respect to compliance and claims coming back at you. Um, so that that's typically the the, the step I'd take. But um, you know, and and it's a it's a tricky one though because most people most companies would come to me when something's gone wrong and mm-hmm. yeah, there's, there's there's a claim on their doorstep. Um, and you've got to really try and scramble to figure out what's actually happened in play in 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 management practices and things like that. So that's a little bit too late. You know, you you, you want to be on the front foot. And um, with changes to casual employment the last few years, with the last year's changes um, with uh, definitions of employees versus contractors, and with the, the Fair Work Act amendments happening this year, um, now is a really good time to actually stop and and have a think and say, well, do our documents actually give us any protection at all or is it actually lead us down a path where we're going to get a claim on our doorstep? Yeah. They're the sort of things that, that I always look for um, with respect to risk if I'm going to talk to a company. Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing I see sometimes happen, and I can't sort of go into too much detail obviously, but sometimes we see people get paid or um, they will say to us, oh, I've been paid so much on a salary and so much in cash for years and years and years. And when, you know, there's some kind of dodgy bros situation going on and you don't really know how to fix it, how do you navigate that? I mean, as an employee, these people are obviously taking incentives and getting tax-free money and they're in trouble too. But then you've got an employer who's been doing the wrong thing as well. Is it just simply a case of everybody saying, hey, we can't get away with this for any longer, let's change our ways and sweep the rest under the rug or what do you what do you say about things like that yeah i come across it a fair bit um you know and 99 percent of the time it's the the company owner or the employer trying to trying to, to do the right thing by someone um they're trying to be helpful they're trying to give additional benefit or something like that yeah um the onus is on the employer it's on the company. You, you, you're the one with the resources. You're the one conducting the business. You're the person that has the obligations. The obligations do extend to employees and workers, contractors, you know, safety, legislation, all that sort of stuff, absolutely. But when it comes down to, um, you know, payroll uh, matters and things like that, um, you, you're obliged to know what is right and what's wrong. It, mm-hmm. There's no way around that. Um, mm-hmm. um, so I've, I've seen circumstances where, you know, a, a company owner might pay a con- subcontractors um, will pay them um, additional bits in cash or a bits of additional benefits of some kind like that, mm-hmm. and they would then, but they would do that in place of paying the contractor superannuation, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and the agreement between them was as such to, to do that. Um, but then the relationship sours and they come back six months later and they claim for superannuation. And um, and so that that's what I mean by typically people are trying to do the right thing by someone and it ends up um, going bad. Um, but there's other scenarios, you know, where um, uh, casual employees, for example, will be, will be getting paid um, some sort of a retention uh, payment um, just to keep them uh, from going elsewhere. Yeah, and that's that's paid routinely each month, and it's guaranteed. It's 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 not paid against any hours worked, nothing like that. It's just a payment, and that's not a casual employee anymore. Um, by definition, they get paid, uh, engaged by the hour, and paid by the hour. Yeah, you know, you've got a guarantee of ongoing payments. It's you've now altered that agreement. Um, 
So that person now can come back at you and say, look, you, you won't be on my annual leave, my sick days and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's really difficult. My, my rule on that, well, not rule, but, you know, my advice on that is to stop doing it. Um, you know, companies will do it here and there all over the place. The longer, though, that that goes on, that's when it becomes a, a really big uh, risk to, to manage because you can come back for underpayment plans up to six years later. Yes. Um, and that, that can go on for, for a six-year period, so um, or longer. And so, yeah, if you're going to do something like that, do it for a short period of time or just don't do it. <laughs> you mentioned earlier um, something about it, engaging people on a daily basis or a daily rate or something like that. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, one thing, you know, a lot of a lot of people that, that will be interested in in, in this um, and what you do, a big assumption is from the building and construction industry. Um, most companies I go on and sit down with for the first time, they're not really aware of exactly what flexibility they have under the modern award that exists. So, um, you know, they, they want to engage casual employees because they seem more flexible, but they're really not these days. Casual employees are really a real um, nightmare to try and try and manage and navigate um so you've, you've got a full-time employee type and i think everyone knows what that is it's a permanent full-time employee with annual leave and all that sort of stuff part-time is the same thing with all the entitlements with, with a reduced number of hours the, the, everyone knows what a casual is but you've got a daily hire option as well in the um in the building and construction industry award and what that means is that um they're essentially a full-time employee, so they're getting entitlements and they're getting um, all the things that other employ- other full-time employees get. Um, but they also get a loading, which is um, a follow. It's called a follow the job loading, basically. So this is for this is for companies that don't you, know, you, you don't have the luxury of looking ahead and you've got a two-year order book coming in. You've got consistency and that sort of thing. This is for companies uh, to to leverage flexibility where they follow the the, the ebbs and flows of the construction industry, the, the ups and downs and the quiet periods. So you can engage these people um, without engaging them as contractors or casuals, the risk that goes with those two, and have them as daily hire full-time employees where you, you get uh, – it's, it's a one-day notice period. So you can this person can start in the morning. In the morning, you can tell them this is your last day, here's your notice, and they finish up that day, uh, and, and, and that's it. And then you can, get, you can engage them again for the next project under the same, the same conditions. Um, so that's, that's a really – uh, for a lot of businesses that I've worked with, that's a really attractive way to operate too, and entirely lawful, entirely um, it's a provision within the award that you can access, um, and not many people use it. Yeah, I had no idea it existed. Um, it's interesting because from a, a construction law perspective, a lot of my work, it is um, big commercial subbies working for big commercial builders, so that's really like probably 90% of the space that I operate in, um, and a lot of our clients have all of these other aspects of their um, contracting woes that mm. feed into that. So we just, whilst we deal with the big, the big scary stuff, there's all of these undercurrents as well where they really need that extra assistance. And you would think that it would be transferable that a, um, a construction subcontract would just intermesh with the ABN workers, but it really is a, um, a law unto itself. And, I've been criticised over the years on some of my social media posts for saying that um, I think I might have called ABN workers parasites at one point, Tim, <laughs> <laughs> because they, they 
not necessarily in a, it wasn't intended to be in a derogatory way, but because they sort of rock up and they take their full payment and they don't want any of the liability, but really they are actually supposed to be operating a bona fide business and taking on the responsibility of a bona fide business. And one of the things that resonated with me when you said that people are usually doing this from a good, like a place of love or a good place where they're trying to give somebody extra benefits. You don't know how long your boss is going to be your boss because if you're engaged by a company, I mean, we had clients who died last year and then new people came in and took over that company and that was a tragedy and terrible thing for the staff to have to go through in the first instance. But then they were also working for somebody else entirely. It was the same entity, same contracts, but a different boss, so to speak. So things can change very quickly. And um, Mm. those types of handshake agreements, I understand that this is what makes the world go round, but from a, I suppose, a cynical black and white lawyer's point of view, I sort of think of ABN workers as really just shamming the system. They're not bona fide businesses. They're just out there to take what they can get and to flit around and take the best conditions anywhere they go. So, um, yeah, I suppose that parasite comment came from that point of view where they sort of need to pull up their socks and take some responsibility and have some loyalty about the whole thing as well. But um, but that's the nature of the industry and particularly at the moment with the building increase, the price increases for materials and price increases for labour and unavailability of everybody. Um, we're seeing entire trades looking like they're retiring. The talk about residential brickies is just dire at the moment where yeah. a lot of the big bricklaying companies, um, the people who are reaching retirement, their bodies wrecked from years of really hard labour. They made a bucket load of cash recently. So they're like, well, now's the time. But there's just no sort of succession plan for those trades moving forward. And unfortunately, I think it's going to become worse. Um, In fact, we had clients calling us saying, and this was um, for a bricklayer, subcontractor, one of the ladies said to me that they had an apprentice who resigned and said he wanted to be paid as a labourer on ABN, Mm -hmm. his second year apprentice, um, and wanted, you know, a hundred and something bucks an hour on ABN to labour. And she just sort of said, mate, if you want to go, you go. But in 12 months, when the tides change, don't come back to us to get back into year three because... If you're going to burn your bridges now, that's, you know, that's not the long game. So, yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've definitely, you know, businesses in construction that I've worked with, finding people and you know, hiring people, it's been a real challenge for, for some time now. Um, and I, I think, you know, um, if, if you look at the mining industry, for example, a few years ago, everyone was dying to get in the mining industry and that's where the, the big dollars were and all that sort of stuff. You know, these, if we talk about Queensland and Brisbane, just to isolate that section uh, of the country for for a moment. Those large, those big government projects with the big the big um, EBA jobs with massive massive wages being paid, um, and multiple of them, everyone was just drawn to the, to, the, to those jobs. And they're starting to to wrap up now. The, the, the packages of work are starting to finish up. People are starting to come off, and and they're now looking for this. So I think that the tide is changing. Some of those people are now coming looking for looking for work. I'm starting to see the signs of that, mm-hmm. um, but what are you going to do? You're going to go and take a, a an hourly an hourly paid job based on a modern award and a bit extra, um, or are you going to go and get an ABN and just be a contractor? And with um, the protections of these higher court decisions that say companies are, are free to do it, um, 
but the pressure of the Labor government and unions, especially, to have full-time employees, I think it's going to be a real challenge for, for people in building and construction and everywhere, really, uh, for at least the next 12 months until we figure out how all this falls and when um, certain things get challenged and pushed through the commission to see how decisions fall. Um, until, until all this makes sense, it's going to be a real, real um, questionable period of time for, uh, for finding people uh, as employees to begin with and also being able to afford what they want to get paid. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and there's also the, the, the abolition of the Registered Organisations Commission too. So that's, that's another thing that was kind of keeping unions in check a little bit, you know, the, the um, at risk of being a little bit controversial here, we'll, we'll name the CFMMEU and the ETU and those sort of the, the, the bigger guys who are renowned for breaking the rules and just copying the bill. You know, I think there was one period of time there where uh, the CFMEU, before they had the big merger, I think a period of time there, they paid more than $10 million in penalties because um, of their conduct. So, now, this registered organisations commission that was originally set up in 2017 is now abolished. So, um, you know, we're going to see unions push the agenda of uh, of this of these IR amendments um, pretty heavily. And um, you know that the most active unions are in construction and mining in those places. So, yeah. and it's um, it's always been such a paradox to me. My mum was a nurse, and my stepdad worked in forestry. Like mm-hmm. my natural dad had his own business. Um, and my mother-in-law's a teacher. So if I look at the four sort of unions involved, <laughs> my dad, my natural dad, was obviously plagued by the whole EBA thing and having to pay wages and people not turning up. And, you know, I remember him saying it's hard enough to have staff actually turn off but not just have sick days all the time. My stepfather in forestry was a union rep and used to get bullied for being the union rep but they never got anywhere with any of their stuff. And they were still the CFF MEU, um, but forestry really didn't play a part in that. Um, My mum with the nurses union, oh my goodness, she was medically retired after a a second injury at work. She worked for Queensland Health her entire life and they uh, medically retired her with a $0 remuneration and said that it was due to a prior injury, which was also obtained working for Queensland Health. So ridiculous mm. in terms of that. And then went to the union to see if she could get some legal advice. And they sent them to a no-win, no-fee lawyer firm who was affiliated with Queensland Health. It just amazed me. And then <laughs> through, um, and by the way, I was not yet a qualified solicitor and I knew enough for personal injury law to be saying, Mom, what are you doing? You should be mm. following this up. Um and then my, my mother-in-law's a teacher and all through the COVID, I was just thinking, you know, nurses and teachers have never had better leverage than they've got right now and nothing is happening. No one yeah. is getting anything. Like where are the unions in this balls mm. up of a situation? You've got teachers babysitting children in hospitals and nurses going in and exposing themselves and, and the mandatory vaccination requirement and all of those things, which I think is deeply questionable about whether they actually even could legally do what they did there. Um, but, yeah, look, unions, I've seen very little ever good ever come of it. And I lived up in Moranbar for, I think it was nearly five years, and, you know, it seemed to be that the mining and the construction really is the only place that they drive the price of everything up and they drive it up so much that now it's almost like we can't make Holdens in Australia anymore and 
yeah. It's a, it's, it can be devastating, you know. There's, uh, I'll, uh, I'll say this next bit. I'll, I'll reminisce on this next part without naming any companies and, and um, <laughs> sites and things. But, you know, um, you know, going through a period of time where uh, we had to deal with a significant protracted period of industrial action and um, unions who, uh, three major unions who combined to be, to be a single bargaining unit um, were busing people from other sites and and picket lines and shaking our cars and all sorts of things. It was a real violent, hostile time and um, got to the point where um, we had to shut down a couple of sites. We had to shut them down and thousands of people lost their homes and their, and their jobs. And, um, and and I was sitting in a seat with a line of 600 people waiting, waiting to see me to be told that they're being made redundant and losing their homes. So, you know, that, living through that and and dealing with the death threats that you get from from being part of that team and all that sort of stuff it's really difficult to walk away from something like that and 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 say good things about the union movement however however i think that they they do have a role to play with um, especially with government organizations i think you know nurses teachers police officers and that sort of thing i think there's a there's a, a strong voice that should be had there but um I've got a love-hate relationship with 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 the whole movement, you know. So yeah, <laughs> be careful, be careful what what I say publicly about it. But um, likewise, yeah. hey, I think I'm, <laughs> if anyone's going to get in trouble for this podcast, it'll be me calling ABN workers parasites again. So, <laughs> um, but I do remember when I was living up in Moranbah that it wasn't necessarily the wage that you took home; it was the other in-kind benefits like the vehicles and the accommodation yep. and all those things. And when you when I look back and go. Yeah, that was a lot of money for us to be earning, but we had a finite earning capacity and we were in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Anyway, it's been an amazing chat, Tim. Um, I won't um, wring your brain out anymore. I think we've um, got some really good nuggets of advice there. So thank you very much. Uh, if our listeners would like to get in touch with you, I'll put your details in our show notes. Great. Um, so it would be great uh, to have you on for another one a little bit later on in the year if you're open to it. And we'll talk a little bit more about unions and IR and all that juicy stuff. Yeah, one of my favourite topics. So I'll be up for that. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. All right, well, thank you very much. We'll see you on the next one. Are you an Aussie tradie and your paperwork is shady? Do the doctors from side keep you up late at night? Are you sick of pushing paper? Swinging your tools the more you gave up. Call us the tricks of your trade. Welcome to the Tricks of Your Trade podcast, where we talk about trade business topics to help you get through business life unscathed. Does the bill to pay you late and your cash flow fluctuates? Do you dread the office work? Can't afford a full-time clerk? Consider working smarter. Don't be a business smarter. Call us the Tricks of Your Trade.